My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, November 20th, 2013. Yes, we will be doing our light episode today. Something in particular I'm trying to accomplish... Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, and open up God's Word to see if uh, the man of God bringing us God's Word is actually a man of God or an agent of the devil. How do you know if he's an agent of the devil? He's twisting God's Word and not telling you the truth about God. That's kind of the idea. Now, tonight is Wednesday, and uh, I'm trying to do some inoculation work, if you would. Um, Having seen the direction that the secrets of the Bible revealed um, of the History Channel, which direction they're going to go, I thought it would be good to uh, begin giving you some good resources to put in your hand to and put into your brain to inoculate you against these really lame, already debunked liberal arguments that have gotten a um, pimp my liberal arguments makeover. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to be listening to uh, a a class taught by Pastor Ernie Lastman of uh, 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 Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. This is part of his adult information class, kind of Christianity 101 stuff. And we're going to be listening to his lecture on what is the Bible, where did it come from, how can it be God's word if men wrote it, and what is the purpose of the Bible? That's what we're going to be listening to 
Pastor Lastman wax eloquent about. And uh, watch the podcast stream because I'm going to be putting a PDF in there probably tomorrow that will have a uh, a resource that uh, number one you can download it it'll be a, a you know a full link to a pdf copy of a good book that uh, every a good christian berean should have and it's called alleged discrepancy of the uh, discrepancies of the bible by haley and uh, it, this is a 19th century work and it has i'm telling you it has not been surpassed it's just an excellent book uh, debunking all of those people out there claiming, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions and stuff. No, it ain't. And then also two recommendations for two books for you to purchase if you want to add to your library and increase your knowledge in your arsenal, your apologetics arsenal, if you would. And that would be um, the book Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible by Gleason Archer. A fantastic work. If you do not have it, this is a must-have. It'll help you whenever you're dealing with somebody who is trying to say, oh, yeah, you know, the Bible has got all kinds of weird errors and strange things in it. It can't possibly be true. Between Haley and Gleason Archer, you've got yourself like a, an impregnable fortress. But then the add into the mix is, uh, is uh, the New Testament introduction by Guthrie. If you do not have a copy of that, any serious student of the New Testament uh, who wants a great work, scholastic, well-done just you know, you know, I can't even speak well enough of it. I'll I'm going to make you know, give you links and why you should have these in your library in the PDF that I'm going to be sending out tomorrow. So, without any further ado, here is Pastor Ernie Lastman in his Christianity 101 series on what is the Bible, where did it come from, how can it be God's word if men wrote it, and what is the purpose of the Bible. Here we go. We're going to talk about the Bible, and I'll do the best job I can with the time I have to kind of work you through uh, about uh, this book here that we call the Bible. So, number six, which book has God given us for this purpose? Now, let's make sure you understand the question. It says, for which purpose, right? Well, that purpose goes back to question number five, what's our highest ambition? To know Him. In other words, God has given this book that we might know our highest ambition to know Him. That's the purpose of the book. Now let's look at the Bible passage that kind of uh, illustrates this. Second Timothy. Now this is written by the great apostle Paul to young pastor Timothy. It's called Second Timothy because Paul wrote two letters to him. So this is Second Timothy 3, 15 and 16. And Paul says the sacred writings, and above the word sacred, you can write the word holy if you want, because that's what the Greek word means. The holy writings, the sacred writings, are also able to instruct you for what? Salvation. Uh, salvation from sin, death, the power of the devil, right, and damnation. To instruct you in salvation through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. Now I'm going to skip the all scriptures inspired by God because we're going to do that in just a moment. Now it says the sacred writings are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. From this we learn, and then we'll give you some illustrations. God has given us the Bible through which we are brought to the saving knowledge of Christ. In other words, if you want to know about Jesus Christ, you don't go to Safeway. If you want to know about Jesus Christ, you don't even go to Mount Rainier. The Bible has been given to us 
for the purpose that we might know him. Now, this is very important. Let me give you a couple of illustrations here. People really misunderstand this. People who are not well informed about the Christian faith or about the Bible often don't really understand the main purpose of the Bible. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say I'm downtown Seattle, I'm in Pioneer Square, I've got my clergy garb on, and I've got a clipboard, and I tell people, uh, business people at lunch, I'm taking a religious survey. Oh, okay. And I'm asking them questions, but here's the real question I'm asking them. Why did God give us the Bible? I mean, even if you don't believe there is a God or whatever, but just in your opinion, your knowledge, why did God give us the Bible? Now, the average response, unless they've been to an adult information class, or something similar, and this is based upon my personal experiences as well as lots of reading and research, the average typical response is, God gave us the Bible to show us how to live a good life. God gave us the Bible, right, for the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And that's wrong. Now listen how I say this, because my language is very important. How we live, how we live, is one reason that God gave us the Bible. But it's not the main one. What's the main reason God gave us the Bible? It's right in the Bible passage. The sacred writings are able to what? Instruct you for salvation. The main purpose of receiving the Bible is to know how much God loves you. Now, probably many of you, if not all of you, know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He told us how to live. <laughs> That's not what it says. <laughs> no. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Number one, because this is the truth about the Bible. And number two, if you don't understand that the primary message of the Bible is about God's love for you in Jesus Christ, you will have a tendency to look at this Bible as a rule book, a guide for living. That's not the main reason. Now, I don't know about you, but if this is a rule book, I think I'd rather not. Thank you. I can barely keep the ten that I know about. Do you understand my point? If this is a rule book, you're going to be either not very likely to want to read this, or after a while you're going to get all bogged down and say, okay, that's enough of that. I, you know, I can't keep half of them anyway, so why should I bother? But if you understand, if you understand the real meaning of life, that the main purpose of this book is to show you how much God loves you, John 3.16, you might be a little bit more inclined to read this. And it's the difference between looking at the Bible as a rule book or a love letter. This is a love letter. That's the main reason God gave us the Bible. It's so that we know why might know about this. And have forgiveness of our sins. And peace with God. And meaning and purpose to life. And the hope of victory over death and the resurrection to everlasting life. It's all love. God so loved the world. Now, are there things in here about living for Him? Yeah, we're going to talk about that in lesson number eight. That's about good works. But it's secondary. Because you're going to hear, and I don't know what you already believe or don't believe on this, you are not saved by keeping the rules. Nobody's saved by keeping the rules. Because what I'm going to show you, nobody can keep them good enough. 
We're only saved by God's love and mercy in Jesus Christ, as I'll show you. That's why it's important, too. Okay. Um, by the way, this uh, the whole Bible is about Jesus, too. Um, let's see what I want to show you here. Uh, let's look at John 5. 39. This is Jesus speaking in John 5, 39. He's talking, by the way, to all the religious scholars, the Pharisees. And look what he says in, in 39. Uh, you diligently study the scriptures. Well, that's good. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. That's good. Now look what he says. These are the scriptures that what? Testify about me. Now, let's see how smart you are. Which scriptures is Jesus talking about? The Old Testament or the New Testament? The Old Testament. Because the New Testament had not yet been written. And that's the point I want to make so you don't miss it. And we'll be going over this in the future. Some people misunderstand the Bible. And here's an overly simply, a simple way of saying it. Some people believe, well, you know, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, you're uh, saved by faith in Jesus. But in the Old Testament, you were saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Wrong. The whole Bible is about Jesus. That's what I hope to show you in 15 weeks. The whole Bible. Okay. Here's the, here's the creation of the world. Here's the end of the world. Here's the Old Testament. Here's the coming of Jesus. Here's the New Testament. And what I'm going to show you in the weeks to come is in the New Testament, it's true, we're saved by faith in the Jesus who has come in the past. But what I'm going to show you in the future, in the Old Testament, they were saved by faith in the Jesus who was coming. Matter of fact, Abraham didn't, didn't have the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? Abraham lived just round numbers, so don't take this literally. Abraham lived about 500 years before Moses got the Ten Commandments. I'll show you all these passages. Right now, I'm just tickling your fancy, and I'll uh, give you previews. So, the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ who is coming, or the Jesus Christ who has come. And I'll show you that. It's a love letter from beginning to end. Well, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the Bible. Number seven, who wrote the Bible? Now, we're going to talk about two things in the next 10, 15 minutes or so. We're going to talk about the human side of the Bible, and then we're going to talk about the divine side of the Bible. Right now, we're looking at the human side of the Bible. And so it says, Second Peter, the great apostle Peter, holy men, and you might want to circle or highlight the word men, as it's in black there, because we're emphasizing the human side. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, we'll come back to that. I'm emphasizing man right now. Now, let's look at just a couple of basic things. And you do have a couple of your handouts. You can read on your own to supplement and embellish what I'm telling you uh, tonight. A uh, couple of things. If I can find my chalk here. Here we go. First of all, let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. It was written in Hebrew, and you're going to get real technical. There's a few places in Daniel, Ezekiel, that are written in Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic is just a dialect, a derivative of Hebrew, so I'm just going to be overly simplistic and say in Hebrew. It was written in Hebrew because that was the language of the Jews, the Semitic people. It was written by the prophets, 
And sometimes we think of prophets as only people who foretold the future. Prophets did do that, but it was only a minor part of their job. They did foretell the future. They told the coming of Christ, as we'll see. But prophets were basically preachers. They brought the word of God to the people in the Old Testament. And they are the ones who wrote uh, the, uh, the Bible. Now, when was the Bible written? Now, these are going to be round numbers for you, okay, uh, based upon my knowledge, but I want to make it easy for you to remember. So don't take it literalistically, but just take these as round numbers so you can get a, a, an idea about when all this was written. The, the first part of the Old Testament was written approximately 500 B.C. That would be 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. And that would be the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The last book of the Old Testament is written approximately 450 B.C., and that would be, literally, the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Okay, okay and uh, we won't uh, look at that, but I think there were about, when you look up all the different authors of the Old Testament, there's about 40 different authors of all the Bible. By the way, uh, Moses is known as a prophet. King David is even called a prophet, because King David uh, uh, wrote God's Word too. He wrote many of the Psalms. Psalms are in the Bible. Written, ha over half the Psalms are written by King David. He's a prophet, as well as a king. Okay, and then we want to go to uh, the New Testament a little bit and explain this. In the New Testament, there are 27 books. Which gives you a total of how many books in the Bible? 66. Well, I don't do math. I need that help. Now, if you can remember, if you can remember, just remember 39. Why? If you can remember 39, you can get 27, because what's 3 times 9? 27. So if you can just remember 39, you got then the New Testament books and the total. I throw in all these things at no extra charge. <laughs> now, the New Testament was not written in Greek, which is really amazing if you don't know the whole story, because the first Christians were Jews, and their natural language would be Hebrew or Aramaic. But rather than that, it was written in Greek. Okay, now, we have to explain, why was it written in Greek? Well, something incredibly important happened after 450 B.C. Sean Alexander. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Alexander the Great. Yeah, not Sean Alexander, but Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, just a ballpark number for you again, was around 300 B.C. Okay? And what happened, if you know your, your stories a little bit, your history, Alexander the Great just stomped everybody. You might remember the famous story. He's all the way on the uh, uh, western edge of India, and finally his troops said what? We're done. <laughs> We're not going any farther. We quit. Okay? And then it was on the way back home to Greece when Alexander the Great died prematurely at the age of uh, 30. Can you believe that? Okay, now here's the point. What happened is, wherever Alexander the Great went, and side note here, Alexander's teacher was Aristotle. Aristotle. So wherever Alexander the Great went, he dominated everybody militarily. And wherever he went politically, he established Greek language and Greek culture. 
So that by 300 years later, when Jesus and the apostles are around, what happened is Greek culture and Greek language came to dominate the Mediterranean area. And so if you were an educated person, you spoke Latin, Greek, and your native language. So there's no question that in addition to Hebrew or Aramaic, Jesus and the apostles knew Greek. And here's the point. When the Christian church started to grow out and everything into the Roman Empire, the reason they wrote Greek was this. Greek was the international language of the day. If they wrote a letter in Greek, didn't matter where it went, it could be understood. Right? It could be understood. And so that's how then the Greek language got into the New Testament. And that's how Peter and Paul and those, they wrote in Greek, not in Hebrew or Aramaic. Okay, uh... When was the, uh, no, who wrote? The prophets wrote the Old Testament. Who wrote the New Testament? Well, the apostles did. Okay? Like John, like Peter, etc. But there's a few people in there that were not apostles, but they were called evangelists. Okay? And to use slang, evangelists were like the sidekicks to the apostles. Like Luke, he wasn't an apostle. But he was intimately involved with Paul. If you know your book of Acts, you know that. Okay. Mark, he wasn't an apostle, wrote the Gospel of Mark, but he was intimately involved not only with Paul, but with Peter, and so forth and so on. So they were written by apostles or underneath or evangelists under the supervision of apostles. Now, when was the New Testament written? Well, these are ballpark numbers based upon uh, what I know. Probably the earliest document was 45. A.D. And there's two contenders for that. The book of James or 1 Thessalonians. The book of James or 1 Thessalonians. By the way, A.D., a long time ago, I used to thought that meant after death. Does it mean after death? It's a Latin phrase. Anno Domini. Uh, anno, you might see that if you, if you do any gardening, you have annuals. What are annuals? You're a plant? Or in high school or college, you got a, an annual. And so annual is for a Latin word for year. And domine? That's pizza. Well, <laughs> oh, you're still awake. That's good. Domine is a Latin word for, for Lord. By the way, I don't know if there's any truth to it. I joke about, I, I joke about pizza. And take this... You know, with a grain of salt, I don't know if it's true, but my understanding is the, the founder of Domino's Pizza was a very devout Roman Catholic, and he purposely used Domino's to, as a play on words for Domini and Lord. I don't know if that's true or not, I heard that. Okay, the earliest document is about 45, the last document approximately, approximately, is 95 AD, which would be the book of Revelation, indeed the last book in the New Testament. Now, I don't want to get too complicated here, but scholarship, even... Um, what I would call mainstream scholarship that is not necessarily historically conservative, but even mainstream um, um, scholarship is um, starting to date these documents even earlier and earlier. There's many people, it's becoming, it started out as a little idea and it's grown over the last 40 years or so. Um, there's a good chance that most of these documents, maybe other than Revelation, were written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's very possible. Yes? You know, I mean, uh, the, the Revelation has a lot of, of Daniel in it, too. 
Yeah, that's called, uh, the technical language for that literature is apocalyptic literature. Uh-huh. And you're right, it has imagery like Daniel and Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah that's right. Okay, so that's just kind of the nuts and bolts of, of the Bible. So if there's anything else I want to bring up, that's kind of the human side. Anybody want to ask any questions just about the human side? Uh, the Bible just didn't drop from heaven. There was a real human process involved in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Any comment or question just on those kind of basic facts? Can I ask a question? Yeah, please here and then back there. Please go ahead. Um, John of Patmos who wrote Revelation, is he the same John or John of the Gospels? Yes. If you get into really deep scholarly literature, you'll hear some different debates about who this John was. There may be some that would indicate, oh, I'm not sure, it could have been a, a pastor or a presbyter. But I think mainstream basic uh, um, scholarship would come down finally, yeah, this is probably John the Apostle. Yeah. Uh, please. Reason, uh, part of, one of the reasons uh, for the for um, uh, uh, speaking Greek, using Greek, um, didn't they highly respect the, their philosophy as well? Yes, but that had nothing really to do with it. They did highly respect their philosophy, uh, but the main reason is that Greek simply became the international language today. Just like until his, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hispanic language takes over Spanish language or some other language, Japanese or something. Uh, right now, English is the international language of the day, isn't it? And so if you're a German businessman and you want to do international business, you better have some people in your company that can speak why? English. That's the way Greek was in the days of Jesus. It was the international language. If you want to do commerce or industry or scholarly stuff or what, everybody spoke Greek. Yeah. And, and, and unlike Americans who like, you know, we go into Europe and say, anybody speak American here? <laughs> the rest of the world is very comfortable with knowing more than one language, as we know, in Europe and other places. That's the way it was in Jesus' day. Uh, maybe some of you might remember, even when Jesus was crucified, I don't know how well you know your Bible, it was put, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, in three languages, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. So everybody could just read it just fine. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about the divine side, the God side of the Bible. Now, this is question number eight. Before we get into those Bible passages, I'd like to have you write down uh, two others that our author of this study does not include, but I'd like to give them to you because I think they help a little bit to see the others. Uh, Both of the references are in John. The first reference in John is 1426. And the second reference in John is 1613. And because Jesus gave a very special promise uh, to the apostles, and only to the apostles, not to me or to you. And let's look these up. John 14, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And look what Jesus says to the apostles in John 4, pardon me, 14, 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, now remember he's talking to the apostles, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I said to you. Now, getting back to your question about the triune God, you know, here we're, and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in lesson number eight, but we see here the Holy Spirit, the triune God is involved here. Now, what I want you to see is Jesus gives to the apostles and to the apostles only a very special promise that the Holy Spirit, 
would lead these men into all Christian truth and remind them of everything Jesus said and did. Now, first of all, in those days, they already had good memories. Uh, they memorized stuff all the time. They would put us to shame. But in addition to their good memories and any notes they would take, they had supernatural help. That's what I'm trying to say from this Bible passage of leading them. By the way, I don't know if you know this phrase yet, but on this Bible passage, and we'll talk about this in Lesson 12, in the Creed, we talk about the church being one holy Christian, Catholic, and apostolic. This is why it's apostolic. Because the Christian church is based on the teachings of the apostles who are led by the Holy Spirit, like this, to do this. Okay? Now, the next one's in John 2. Go to John 16, 13. Let's start at 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. And by the way, the reason he's saying this, he knew he was soon going to be crucified, and soon after that, raising from the dead, and soon after that, leaving this world in a visible way. So they would be left behind. Uh, 13 then. But when he, the spirit of what? Truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. Now, of course, I'm emphasizing the truth thing too. That means, obviously, I'm implying already that the Bible is trustworthy. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. When we come back, the balance of today's lecture by Pastor Ernie Lassman on the Bible. Can you trust it? Is it trustworthy? What about the inspiration of all that kind of stuff? Stay tuned. Don't miss it. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. 
Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day 3. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega-pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. (laughs) Maybe the world would be better off if they did.
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. (laughs) Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about Think Geek. At Think Geek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, God's Word can be trusted. The people out there who are attacking God's Word and telling you it's full of errors, you can't trust it, and all that kind of stuff, they're doing the work of the devil. Mm -hmm. It's true. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, it's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, here is the balance of today's lecture by Pastor Ernie Lassman talking about the nature of the Bible, how inspiration works, and all that kind of stuff, and its trustworthiness. It's a great lecture, good introduction to uh, the topic. Here again is Pastor Ernie Lassman. Let it go all truth. Now, with that background, let's look at the Bible passages that are in our green booklet under question number eight. 2 Peter 1.21, we saw this earlier, but now we're going to take up the second part of the passage. A holy men of God spake 
as they were what? Moved by the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. By the way, Holy Ghost is good King James language. And in this class, there's no distinction meant whatsoever between Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit. Uh, it's just what happened is the King James, which was written in 1611, same time as William Shakespeare, they use the word ghost. But all modern translations, unless you can show me otherwise, all say spirit. It's just a matter of what ghost meant in 1611 and what it means today. So it's not a big deal. Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, same same thing. But notice it says they were moved by the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Now, this is what's going to drive you crazy all throughout this class. Because <laughs> it drives me crazy too. The Bible doesn't answer every single question we have. You know, sometimes we're like children of God. As a matter of fact, that's what we're called. We're called children of the Heavenly Father. And children are always asking what? Questions. questions. You know, if you're not a parent yet, or if you have been, you know, why? Why this? Why that? Why this? Until after a while as a parent, you just want to say what? Because. That's the way we are with God sometimes. We're always asking all these questions. Okay? And sometimes we find answers to our questions in the Bible, and that means, well, that's something we really need to know. But he doesn't answer every single question. Now, here's the point I'm going with this. I'm going to be showing you, which some of you may already know or believe, the Bible is God's Word because the people who wrote the Bible were led by the Holy Spirit to write those things. Now, here's the point. We're never told how that happened. We're never given the mechanism of how God did that. In other words, let me show you what, what it wasn't. It wasn't that the apostles were at their computers, right? and the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, was sitting on their shoulder, and whispering in their ears, and they were going like this. Oh, say that again. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Oh, no, back up. That's not what we mean. We don't understand this, because uh, when you, uh, when you uh, look at the Bible very carefully, even in the English, you can see that the different authors had a little bit different style of writing, a little bit different grammar or vocabulary. In other words, God is so great and wonderful, he could take the individual personalities of each of the apostles or evangelists and use it for what? His purpose. So the fine, in the final analysis, what they wrote under the guidance or influence, however you want to say, of the Holy Spirit was God's Word, as we're going to see. So that's what Peter tells us. In a way we don't understand, they were moved, led by, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what's the result of that? Second Timothy. This is Paul's second letter to young Pastor Timothy. All scriptures inspired by God. Now let's start with the word inspired. Would you circle or highlight or underline the word inspired? Uh, most translations don't say that anymore. I don't know if you have a Bible open or not. But the word inspiration here uh, is it, too watered down because we use the word inspiration in a variety of ways. Uh, for example, you might go and see a movie, and you come out and say, ah, oh, wasn't that an inspiring movie? Or you read a great book or something. Ah, oh, that was such an inspiring book. Or you hear one of my sermons, and you say, ah, yeah. oh, I see you're with me. I say, gee, that was inspiring. The point is, we use the word inspiring and inspiration too loosely now. And this word here, in the Greek, this is the only place in the entire New Testament this Greek word shows up. And inspiration is probably not the best translation. The word literally means God breathed. So if you look at that, you say, all scriptures what? 
God breathed. Now let me show you the connection with the Holy Spirit. Both in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, the word for breath, wind, and spirit are all the same. So if all of Scripture is God-breathed, the implication is that Scriptures are the result of God's Spirit. Do you follow that? Okay. Now, so uh, so it needs to be God-breathed. Now, the other word I want you to circle or underline or somehow make a note of, notice the word all. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, this is very important. Not some of the Bible is God's Word. All of it is God's Word. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, that's what the Bible consistently says. All the Bible is God's Word. The other thing is, if you do not accept that, I'm not saying you personally, but if someone doesn't accept that, okay, they say, okay, part of the Bible is God's Word, and some parts aren't. Ooh, real big problem. Now we're down to personal opinion. And who's going to tell who what part is God's Word and what part is human word. And how do you determine that? And who's going to determine that? See, so if you do that, you open the floodgates of pure subjectivism. Personal opinion. So either none of the Bible is God's word, it's just a human document, and that's what some people believe. Great literature. Or all of it's God's word. But you can't go in between and say some is and some isn't. Now let me say one thing here that I usually say elsewhere down the road, but I'll say it now. Even though it's all God's Word, it still has to be interpreted properly. You can make the Bible say anything you want. Matter of fact, who quoted the Bible to the Son of God in the wilderness? Just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean according to the Bible. And that's one of the reasons I show you all these Bible passages. I tell you what I believe, and I show you the Bible. It's up to you, finally, and ultimately, after 15 weeks, saying, you know, he hasn't been really quoting that right, because, you know, he says this, but doesn't say that at all. Or you say, well, by golly, that's what it says. Because you can make the Bible say anything you want. So it has to be interpreted properly. And I don't have time to give you all the principles of biblical interpretation, but every once in a while, I'll kind of give you some of the uh, principles of biblical interpretation here or there. The other thing to remember, it not only has to be interpreted properly, now listen carefully, even though I believe with all my heart, every word in the Bible is God's word, it's not all of the same value. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament, uh, people couldn't eat pork. I ignored that. Why? Because in the New Testament it says, we can't eat pork. See what I mean? Yeah. Okay, that's just one little illustration. So, knowing John 3.16, God so loved the world, is far more important than someone knowing that in the Old Testament they couldn't eat pork. Now, it's all God's Word. I'm not denying it's God's Word. But do you see what I mean about the different value? It can all be God's Word and have different value. That's very important. Please. How, how I interpret the Bible being true is... Because the Bible backs itself up with Scripture. That's right. That, that's one of the principles, Steve. Scripture interprets Scripture. And you're going to be seeing me using that principle all throughout this 15 weeks. Scripture interprets Scripture. Another key, of course, which is common sense in any kind of literature, interpretation, is the context of the verse. You take something out of context, you can make it say anything you want, right? Yeah. So we'll be doing that. Thanks. 
Okay, now look at the next one. First Corinthians. This is the great apostle Paul, his first letter to the church in Corinth, Greece. Corinth was due west of Athens. And this is what he writes. We, and he's talking about we pastors, we ministers, we apostles, everyone put it in there. We do not speak in words taught by what? Human wisdom, not from Aristotle, not from Plato, or somebody else like that, but words taught by what? By the Spirit. Now see, this is where it drives you crazy, because being children, we always want to say, well, how did you do that? And we're never told. That's what I mean. The mechanism is never told. It just makes the what? Makes the statement. Makes the fact. And of course, it's very important. That's why I read you those two passages from John's Gospel, so you can see what Paul and Peter are saying was based upon the promise that was first given by Jesus that this would happen. The Holy Spirit would, indeed, lead them into all the truth. And so these passages just confirm what we saw in John 14 and John 16. Okay, so from this we learn God moved, impelled, somehow carried, influenced, whatever you want to say, the prophets, apostles, and evangelists to write. All scripture was inspired or breathed into, breathed out by God, the sacred writers. God put into their minds the very thoughts which they expressed and the very words they wrote. You might want to highlight or underline verbal inspiration. What do I mean by that? And this is a historic Christian teaching. It means God just didn't give them the idea, and then they could say it any way they wanted, but he gave them the very words. Words are everything. Uh, Martin Luther, I don't know if it's original with him or not, but when it comes to interpreting the Bible, Martin Luther says grammar is everything. He who errs in grammar errs in theology. Why? He who er- I mean, he who errs in the grammar of the Bible errs in theology. What was he getting at? Could change the meaning completely. Exactly, because how did God communicate with us? Human language, right? Okay, and so that's why, as a pastor, I have to stutter. Stutter, I stutter too. <laughs> I have to study when I do a when I do a Bible study or a sermon. I've got to study the text. What's the text? Words, sentences, paragraphs, conjunctions. I have to study all that because this is how God has communicated to us. If you get the grammar wrong, you get the theology wrong. So that's very, very important. So verbal inspiration means every single word is important to one degree or another because that's how he communicates his truth. Okay, uh, so... Let's talk about uh, what then are we assured, number nine. Uh, this is Jesus speaking, John 17, 17. And in John 17, this is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus knew what was going to happen soon. His betrayal, the garden, his crucifixion, and his resurrection and everything else. He knew he would be leaving in soon. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and what he wants to see happen after he leaves. But one of the things he says to the Father is, Thy word is truth. The thy refers to the Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, your word is what? Truth. And so it says, because it is the word of God, we know the Bible is true without error, absolutely trustworthy. The sole authority is in matters of all Christian faith and life. In other words, even though human beings wrote the scriptures, the Christian teaching <coughs> is the real author of the Bible is God. 
And if God is the author, if it's properly interpreted, there can't be any mistakes. How could you depend on the Bible if there were errors in the Bible? Because if there's one error, whoa, be careful, because if there's one error, maybe there's two errors, or three errors, or four errors, or five errors. So let's do this and see if this helps a little bit, what we're getting at here. It's really an issue of how we know truth. And this is a little bit simplistic, but it's essentially true. How do we get at truth? Well, there's basically three ways. Number one, through what we would call human reason and logic. Yeah, I mean, this is all that education is all about, right? Going to school, learning math, learning history, becoming a philosopher, whatever. Okay, and we accept that. That's fine, no problem. Another way that we can learn truth is from tradition. You know, in other words, tradition is a truth that has been passed down, right? And we can also learn from experience. Okay. For example, a five-year-old who's told not to touch the stove because it's hot. You know the rest of that story, don't you? They learn for themselves. The experience. Stove hot. So, now, there's nothing wrong with these things. Uh, Christians in general, and Lutherans specifically, are not anti-intellectual. We value reason. We value... We have the second largest Christian school system in America, second only to the Roman Catholic Church. We have 18 universities and colleges. Our clergy are very well educated. We're not against reason and logic. That's, that's good. But here's the point. Reason and logic, as wonderful they are, are not infallible. Reason and logic are often what? Wrong. Scientific theories and things like that. Yeah. So, that's good, but we can't base our eternity on reason and logic. Now, tradition and experience. We Lutherans value tradition. Right? You come to a, a Lutheran service here at Messiah, it's very traditional. And we value experience. Nothing wrong with experience. Sometimes people can't see me. I'm sitting up in my chair on a Sunday morning and behind the pulpit kind of hidden and we're singing a particular song and maybe a little tear runs down my cheek because it really hits me that day about forgiveness or peace or something. There's nothing wrong with experience or emotion. But these aren't infallible either. Traditions can be what? Wrong. That's what the Lutheran Reformation was all about in the 16th century. The Lutheran Reformation of the 16th century with Martin Luther was saying some, not all, some of the traditions of the church were wrong and they needed to be fixed. And the same thing with experience. Now this is where I always joke, this is probably the first time you'll hear this phrase, but if you have an experience, how do you know it was real or it was a bad can of chili you had the night before? You have a subjective experience, right? Somebody comes to me with some sort of weird experience and say, well, how do I know if it was real or not? I don't know if it's real or not. In other words, experience can be real and valid, or it can be hallucination, just like that person on the psych ward at Harborview says, the kingdom's still there. Well, I'm sorry, it's not there anymore. You know, that's wrong. So we value those things. That's what I want you to hear. But they're not infallible. So we don't judge the Bible by reason or logic, and we don't judge the Bible by tradition or our experience. It's the other way around, because the last source of truth that we have is revelation from God. And by revelation, I don't mean the book of Revelation. Okay, I basically mean the Bible. 
God reveals himself to us. And I'm going to show you this in future lessons. We would not know God, the one true living God, unless he told us about him. For example, you wouldn't know anything about me unless what? I reveal you. Like, you know, I've married two children, right? My education, how long I've been in the ministry. You wouldn't know any of that unless I what? I reveal it to you. And same with you. I don't know you unless you what? You reveal yourself. That's the way it is with God. Now, the point is, in the church, only the Bible is our authority. And this is where we sometimes get into difficulty with the modern world because they think we're stupid or whatever, you know, we can because we're always judging everything by the Bible. Reason and logic don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges reason and logic. Tradition and experience don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges tradition and experience. That's what we're trying to say. Now, in the, in the Reformation, I don't know how much you know about the Reformation, there were several Latin phrases, but the Latin phrase that captured this truth during the time of the Reformation was sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone is our authority in the church. So we value those things, but only the third one is authoritative in the church. It has the last word. Comment, question, confusion, no confusion. About that. Please, yes. Briefly explain what the Reformation was. Yes, the Reformation was in the 16th century, 1500s in Germany. Martin Luther uh, was a Roman Catholic priest and an Augustinian monk. And basically, uh, he was the one that brought about. Uh, well, let's put this in. Before Martin Luther, there was only one church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church. Then with the Reformation, he challenged some of the erroneous doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church and erroneous uh, practices based upon those erroneous teachings, and he was summarily, ex uh, not executed, excommunicated. And that's where the Lutheran Church came from. And then after that, I'm be overly simplistic. The other Protestant churches came about by looking at Martin Luther and saying, Martin, Martin, you got such a good start, but you still have too much Roman Catholic theology hanging on you. We're going to even do more. And that's where all the other Protestant churches came from. That's the Reader's Digest version. Okay, anything else before we start getting close here? All right, well, let's look at number 10. How can I personally, in my heart, be convinced that the teachings of Christ in the Bible are really true? John 7, 17, this is Jesus speaking. If any man's will is to do his will, he'll know whether this teaching is from God. They give you a hint here, which you can find in John 6, 29 and 6, 40. To do his will means to believe in Christ. Now, I'll read from this, we learn, and I'll give you a better explanation, maybe, because it's kind of hard to see from this passage. From this we learn, if I believe in Christ, I shall know from my own living experience that the teachings of Christ in the Bible are really true, I shall need no further proof. Now let me say it in my own words. What that Bible passage is saying is, I cannot convince anybody in a debate, in a debate, that this is God's word. I can't do that. I can't convince anybody. All I can do is say, that's what this book claims to be. Now here's my point. The only way a person, an individual, is going to accept this book for what it claims to be, the Word of God, is if they have faith in Jesus. If they have faith, don't have faith in Jesus, you'll never convince them this is God's Word. Now let me show you by two silly illustrations the intimate connection between having faith in Christ and believing this is God's Word. 
Silly illustration number one. Somebody says, I believe with all my heart. I get kind of flaky sometimes. That this is God's word. Every single word in here is God's word. I stake my life on it. But I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Well, you see the disconnect? You can't believe this is God's word and then not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world because what does this book say? He's the Son of God. See? Or let's do it the other way. Silly illustration number two. I believe in Jesus Christ as my own Lord and Savior. And He's the only Lord and Savior of anybody else. Believe that with all my heart. But this is just a human book. What do you see the disconnect there? If I believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and the Savior of the world, and my Savior, anybody else's Savior, where did I get all the information? Here. So it'd be silly to say, but this is just a human book. Well, no, this is God's book. So the point is, nobody, here's, here's the point. This is not the way it works. I believe God, the Bible's God's word, then I believe in Jesus. That's not the way it works. Let me say it again. It doesn't work this way. I believe the Bible's God's word, and then I believe in Jesus. That's not the way it works. Well, how does it work? I believe in Jesus, and then I believe this is God's word. Okay, I will. I know, it gets confusing. Let me tell you how it doesn't work. Okay, first I'm going to argue and debate with you that this is God's word. Oh, yeah! Is that okay? Well, then I'll believe in Jesus then, if that's God's word. That's not the way it works. Okay. You don't come to faith in Jesus by first believing this is God's word. It works the other way. First, you believe that Jesus is who he says to be, and then you believe in this book. For example, when you, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be argued or convinced that this is God's word. Why? Because the Jesus Christ that's so important to you is taught where? Here. So you don't have to say that. Now, I know you believe in Jesus as God's word, but you know, you really struggle with this. Is, this uh, you really believe in Jesus as your Savior, but you, you're really having a hard time that this is God's word, so let me help you with this. That never happens. You believe in Jesus? Say, okay, this is God's word, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. See? So it's not Bible, then Jesus. No, it's Jesus, then I accept the Bible as God's word. Okay. In other words, if I want someone to believe in the Bible, I don't argue about the Bible. I talk about other things. Because if this person ever is brought to faith in Jesus Christ, I won't have to convince them about the Bible. They'll just believe it. Number 11. How are we to use the Bible? The operative word there is use. You want to highlight, circle, or underline it. Let me tell you that this is a big joke. You know, sometimes people in a congregation, you know... Find out the pastor's coming over Sunday afternoon after church. So they go looking around for the Bible. I'd be silly to make a point. Get in the drawers and everything. Get out their family Bible, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's got, you know, corsages from the from the uh, prom and, you know, dates of marriages and everything. Put it out there on the coffee table so the pastor can see it when... <laughs> That's sometimes the way the Bible's used. Let's see what the Bible says about how we're supposed to use it. John 5, 39. Oh, we saw this passage earlier. This is Jesus. What does he say? Search the scriptures. Study the scriptures. For them you think you have eternal life. And these are the, they which testify about me. And you know what? That's what we're doing for 15 weeks. What are we going to do for 15 weeks? We're going to search the scriptures. We're going to study the scriptures. And see Jesus Christ and eternal life in those scriptures. So the Bible's meant to be used, read, studied. You should see my Bible. It's all marked up. Luke eleven twenty eight. This is Jesus. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and 
keep it. Now by keep it, it's a, it's, a, it's a special Greek word here. It doesn't mean simply live according to it, which is true, we're going to see. But to keep it means to also believe it. To keep it means the broad sense. Not only live according to it, believe what it says. That's why it's been given to us. Uh, Luke 2.19, this is when the angel Gabriel told Mary about this wonderful child she was going to have. And after hearing about this, we read, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The point is, Christians think about, meditate on, reflect on the scriptures. It's what Mary was doing after she heard the word of God from the angel Gabriel. It just went, oh, okay, well, that was nice, and then forgot about it. She thought about what the angel said. And so, for example, as an example, maybe tonight, or tomorrow, or during the week before next Thursday... You'll think about some of the things you heard here. You'll reflect on it. Think about it. Meditate on it. That's what Mary did. That's what we're supposed to do with God's Word. And finally, John 14, 23, very straightforward. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll do what I say. So that means live according to it. So from this we learn, we should read and study the Bible, hear it, that, uh, hear it preached and taught, believe it, and live it. Well, my goodness, it's 5 till 9, and we can probably take a few questions if anybody's so bold to ask one before we start wrapping things up tonight. Any loose ends, comments? I appreciate Yes, but... Would you explain how Islamic people and their faith and drive became parallel with whatever we learned by Christ? Let me do it real quick, because again, that's a comparative religion, and my job is not to talk about Buddhism, but I will do this very quickly, because unlike Buddhism and Hinduism, think there is a, a historical connection of Islam with the others. Yeah, um, Moses lived around ballpark again, 1500 B.C. Jesus lived at zero. <laughs> Muhammad, you're looking at uh, 600. So, a lot of time between Moses and, and uh, Muhammad. A lot of time, 600 years between Jesus and Muhammad. And what happened is, to be overly simplistic, is uh, Muhammad, uh, and I don't know where he got some of his stuff, but basically he simply modified many things from the Old Testament and the New Testament and bring up these things. Um, I don't know if some of you have watched your Discovery Channel or some of these channels, but you've heard about the Gnostic Gospels, Nag Hammadi Library and things like that. There were false teachers early, early, early in the Christian church. We're going to see many of the things right in the literature of the apostles warning people. Jesus already warning about uh, false prophets, sheep's in, I mean, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Right out of the chute, there were false prophets. And there were certain false uh, teachings that developed. One of them was very famous Gnosticism, which I'm so sick and tired of hearing about. Uh, these days, because it's really old news, but people making it, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, anyway. Uh, what happened then, bud, is all these different uh, pieces of literature that did not make it in the Bible, because it had false doctrine and false teaching, Muhammad picked up some of those teachings out of those false uh, doctrines. For example, Muhammad believes uh, that Jesus was a prophet, but not the Son of God. They also believe uh, that he was crucified, but he did not die on the cross. And that kind of information, for example, is out of Gnostic literature. That's where he got that stuff. So there was lots of literature floating out there that never made it into what we call the Bible or Orthodox Christianity, but it was available for anybody to read or pick up on. And Muhammad was influenced by a lot of that literature. Yes? 
But one last thing. Of course, Jesus is not the Son of God. They don't believe in the triune God. He's not the Savior of the world. Muhammad's greater than Jesus. Yes? Could you explain along those lines why, who decided what was going to be in the Bible? Good question. That's the canon. I don't want to make it sound too complicated, but it didn't work this way. They didn't have a meeting at Starbucks. Okay, we got some books out here, and which one are we going to... didn't happen. Well, how did it happen? Really, it's the early church, and only the early church could decide that, because they were there when the literature was first written. So here's what we know from the early church, that they, they, the, the, the literature had to be written by an apostle or a sidekick of an apostle. So who wrote this? Do we know who wrote this? Only the early church could answer that. Number two, the doctrine in there had to be orthodox. In other words, it couldn't say something contradictory to what has already been revealed in the Bible. It had to be Christ-centered about our salvation and all the issues revolving around our salvation. Another thing that was very important, the literature had to be used in church services. For example, we have a couple of things said by Paul. We know, let me back up. Are, are all of you or most of you familiar that in most church services, the Bible's read in the church service? That already began in the times of the apostles. We have specific statements made. So here's my point. All the early literature was already being used by the first congregation in catechetical classes, in, in, in uh, uh, liturgies and worship services. The point is, the third thing had to be, it had to be used by the early, uh, early church. And there's one thing I just went brain dead, something else. And only the early church could establish that. Now, here's the point. The only reason it became a big deal about what should be in the canon is because of all this other literature I told Bud about that sprang up. And so what happened is people... Uh, well, let me give you the illustration. You're channel surfing, okay? And you come across something about the Gnostic Gospels. You say, hey, Pastor Lassman, I just read this cool stuff. Did you know that Jesus did A, B, and C, and D? And I said, no, no he didn't do that. Well, I just saw it. There's, there's a gospel called the Gospel of Thomas. And I know that's not legitimate. Here's my point. That's why the canon had to be developed, because the early Christians were being confronted by all this false literature. So finally, the church had to stand up and say, whoa, wait a minute. This is the real stuff. This is the bad stuff. And that's how the canon came about. They had to separate all that bad literature out. And only the early church could do that because they were there and knew how to do it. And we have records of that from the early church fathers about Bible uh, books that were quoted in one way or the other. Yeah. Does that help a little bit? Or, yeah. Okay. What about the difference between the Catholic Bible? Good question. There's a, the, the, the only difference between the uh, Catholic Bible and everybody else's Bible is in between the Old and New Testaments, what they have, the Apocrypha. Have you ever heard about that? has books like Tobit, 1st and 2nd, 3rd Maccabees, things like that. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, the church, uh, Martin Luther knew about those books and everything. Those books were around. They were never considered equal to the Old and New Testament. And I'm going to be a little silly, but it's basically true. What happened by the time of the Council of Trent, uh, the Reformation was 1517. The Council of Trent was the official Roman Catholic response to the Lutheran Reformation, and we're looking at uh, uh, 1562. Okay. That's the very first time, the 16th century, first time those apocryphal books were put in the Bible and made equal to the Old and New Testament. And to be honest, I may sound like sour grapes, I don't mean that way. It was a knee-jerk reaction to the Lutherans and the Protestants. Said, oh, you're not going to put them in? Well, we will. <laughs> I'm being silly. And that's what happened. Yes. So those aren't considered to be... Uh, 
And even technically speaking, if you're really pressed, a Roman Catholic priest or theologian real hard, they consider that middle group of books called the Apocrypha as deuterocanonical. It means they're, they're in the canon in a secondary sense, not quite the same thing. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Okay. On that, uh, yes. uh, Luke uh, 1128, uh, blessed are they to hear the word of God and keep it. Yeah. Keep, is that synonymous with uh, obey? Or is it yes, broad? it is. But but here we have the English, with our English word and the Greek word. It does mean to keep or obey, but not just in to do something, but also to, to believe it. So it, it, it's more inclusive than just doing something. It includes hearing something and accepting it. That's where you keep it, too. So it's just a little more broad than just doing it. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.